Paradise paradoxical, demolishing unstoppable obstacles, melting your brain like a popsicle is what I got to do. If you are down with bitcoins, then you have to analyze the system like you're paranoid, exploring which way it's gonna be as we move into a future of decentralized currency. Is it gonna be everything we wanted it to be? Well, let's see. In this episode, I'm going to talk about some of the potential problems with Bitcoin and other decentralized currencies, points we have to look at and consider if we were looking at it as a system and analyzing the risks, we have to look at the human elements and see how they might be affected by old world systems, government organizations, vested interests in the fiat currency system. So. That's what we're going to look at today. Today is the 24th of April when I'm uploading this episode. Yesterday was the 23rd of April when Jeff Berwick and his team put up an interview uh, on Anarchist with me in it. So you can check that out on, on the Anarchist on the Anarchist on uh, YouTube or on your, your favorite podcasting app. It's on iTunes as well. So check that out. Uh, it's a good interview. I had a lot of fun uh, talking with Jeff and it got pretty deep and intense. So that's that's something worth looking into. Remember, you can jump on over to theparadiseparadox.com slash 162 to check out the show notes. Of course, I'm signing a lot of sources here, so you might want to check those out, look into those. And remember, you can head over, over to patreon.com slash paradise paradox to check that out give us a couple of dollars every month that would be much appreciated lets us know that what we're doing here is valuable and cool and and fun and you're getting some value out of it so check that out patreon.com slash paradise paradox let's get into it Hi there. So I wanted you to join me today in putting on your tinfoil cap and joining me on a journey of conspiracy theories uh, about Bitcoin and about digital currency, thinking about potential attack vectors towards these systems. So a lot of us assume, I guess, because these are decentralized systems, we think that maybe there's no way they can be attacked or the, the software is, is very resistant towards being attacked. But of course, attacking the software, attacking things technologically, isn't the only way to attack something. So first, I want to give you a little historical context. So this is from thenation.com. I'll put the link in the show notes. Until unknown people burglarized the FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania, the night of March 8th, 1971, there was only suspicion, not evidence, that the FBI actively worked to suppress dissent. But the media files revealed that African Americans, Hoover's largest targeted group, didn't have to be perceived as having liberal or even radical or subversive ideas to merit being spied on, nor was it necessary for them to engage in violent behavior to become a watched person. Being black was enough. 
The media files revealed directives that required FBI field officers to watch African Americans wherever they went, in churches, in classrooms, on college campuses, in bars, in restaurants, in bookstores, in their places of employment, in stores, in any social setting, in their neighborhoods, and even at the front doors of their homes. Probably few of them realized that the bill collector at their door might be an FBI informer. So, what does this say? Uh, I think, as an aside, a, a lot of people like to say these things like, oh, why would the government want to spy on me? Why would they be paying attention to what I'm doing? I'm not that important. I'm not a mafia don, a drug dealer. I'm, you know, I'm not doing anything interesting. So why would they care? Well, this is a historical example that shows us that they don't need to care. Uh, they have that many resources, then they can do these kinds of things on a whim or on a prejudice. So it doesn't really matter what you're doing or why. Uh, they could just, if they wanted to, they, they could uh, start following you or start intervening in your life. Then I have this other example. So this is a little quote from the antimedia.org. Another undercover officer, Bob Lambert, had relationships with four women while pretending to be an animal rights and environmental activist in the 1980s. Some of the abusive and indefensible relationships which targeted political movements in the UK bore children. So Lambert was actually undercover for many years, working as an agent. He was actually married in his regular life, but in his undercover life, he had this relationship lasting for years, fathered a child. So what this demonstrates is, you know, with, with Snowden and with Assange, with WikiLeaks, uh, everybody kind of knows that, okay, the government is spying on us, haha, whatever. Um, but they don't necessarily put the pieces together about what other kinds of things that might happen. So this example with the London Metropolitan Police puts it into little context. We can see that these police don't mind getting their hands dirty. So when people say things like, oh, what are you, paranoid? You think uh, there are government agents on the internet trolling uh, message boards or something like that. Putting these couple of pieces together, we can see that there's really no reason that that shouldn't be a possibility. And if you look into COINTELPRO, then you know that that's, that's even likely. Now, when we want to analyze a threat, we look at a couple of things. We look at the capability and the intent. Now, in the world today, of course, the Federal Reserve has a lot of power and it shares that power with banks, with, with central bankers, with, with uh, big banking organizations and big banking interests, families like the Rothschilds, and also with uh, large organizations like the CIA, the FBI, uh, because these organizations are funded by the central bank. So these people have an interest in preventing something like a large digital currency from taking over the, the position of the dollar um, or any other uh, fiat currency, any other traditional currency. Uh, because these people don't want their positions to be taken away. Um, they don't want to stop receiving their funding. And that's kind of likely, that's likely what would happen uh, in, in a future 
where uh, digital currency is the main medium of exchange. People aren't necessarily going to fund um, J. Edgar Hoover's uh, racist uh, rants and uh, going around following black people on campuses. Another key example, John Perkins, uh, he wrote the book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. Very interesting book, I recommend it. And what he describes is he was working for the NSA, but indirectly. So he was actually employed by a construction company, which was funded by the NSA. And he would travel to these other countries and he would try to disrupt their economies by getting their governments, bribing their governments into accepting these large loans, uh, which they knew that the, the country probably wouldn't be able to pay off. So using that method, he could control, or the, the, uh, the NSA, the World Bank, could control these countries. And what would happen would be, say, he goes to the country and says, okay, well, I know your brother runs a construction company. We'll subcontract to him and we'll pay him four times the market value. And you naturally, you will get to keep some of that. So they're trying to bribe these, these people in, uh, in a slightly underhanded way. Then what would happen, of course, uh, if the president didn't accept the bribe, then maybe he just died in mysterious circumstances. Uh, and that uh, actually happened a few times, people falling out of helicopters or helicopter crashes uh, through South America. And then, of course, if those two methods failed, uh, what you'd expect is actually the US military would declare war on that nation. Um, but that tends to be not very common. So you notice this is very similar to the method of operation of Pablo Escobar. Um, plata or plomo, silver or lead, money or bullets, take your choice. Either you take the money or you end up dead. So these are the kind of tactics that we can expect from these large organizations that are funded by violence. Another thing we could reasonably expect would be spreading confusion. So trying to commandeer a group, steer it into a different direction, or if you don't really care what direction it goes, if it doesn't really matter for your goals, then what you do is you just spread the confusion and let it come to a deadlock. So uh, disrupt the communication so nobody can really get a, a clear message, make the signal to noise ratio in that group very low, and people will eventually abandon the group. So let's have a look at some strange statements that people make about Bitcoin. And I'm not really suggesting that these people are controlled by government agents or they're being threatened or bribed, uh, but it is a possibility. We have this quote from Bruce Fenton. Bruce Fenton's a, a great guy, a smart guy from the, the Bitcoin Foundation. I had the opportunity to shake hands with him in Acapulco. The other day he wrote this as a reply on Twitter. No leaders in Bitcoin is a big ugly mess with trolling and infighting. And that's a great thing because it makes it damn hard to co-opt. Now, I think he's mistaken there because of course, if you wanted to co-opt a group, naturally you just send it into a state of confusion. Like I mentioned, uh, you don't have to try to take it over if your goal is just to get it to stop. You just make it a shit-throwing fight and that's the end of the story. 
Here's another quote. This quote from Luke JR. He's a Bitcoin core developer. And this is a comment that he made on Reddit. Just pay a $5 fee and it'll go through every time unless you're doing something stupid. So this is a very kind of glib response. People are just saying these, these things like, oh, well, you just need to pay more. But of course, that's, a, that's bidding up the price of transactions in Bitcoin. And once upon a time, we had this dream that Bitcoin would be something special, that it would allow the world, uh, allow people in poverty-stricken countries to take more control over the money, uh, help out the unbanked, and all this kind of thing. Now, here in Mexico, the minimum wage is about $5.50 a day. So, of course, people tend to earn a little more than that. But if someone's telling you that, hey, the transaction fee for this service is, say, 80% or 30% of your daily, daily wages, you can say pretty quickly, that service is not for you. It's not intended for you and it's not going to cater for you. So what it makes it look like is that Bitcoin isn't meant to be this currency transmission service. What it's intended to be is just a vehicle for speculation. And that's not nearly anywhere as interesting as what we thought it was going to be. So if it just becomes this, this uh, vehicle for speculation, I think we're really selling ourselves short of the potential of Bitcoin. Let's look at another quote. This quote is from Greg Maxwell. So Greg Maxwell is a Bitcoin contributor and he works for Blockstream. Let's imagine the most sacred parameter, the supply of coins. Now imagine a future 25 years from now where subsidy is very low and transaction fees are not picking up the slack. For example, a fee market has failed or is insufficient and the security of the system is failing. The network is being reorganized by Byzantine attackers with generation-old hash power. Security and usability are evaporating. Something must be done. With Bitcoin's utility failing, saying you now need to pay fees when you haven't had the last 10 years, may not be a credible argument. So what Maxwell is proposing here is like the, this hypothetical situation in the future where Bitcoin, Bitcoin's utility is reducing. Okay, um, that's... A pretty weird thing to say because Bitcoin's utility is actually reducing today. I mean, if we were lucky, we get to that point 25 years in the future. If Bitcoin doesn't succeed today, if Bitcoin's utility reduces today, presumably what is proposing is that people would bail on Bitcoin and go to some other service. And that's what we'd expect to happen today if the transaction fees stay at this level, like this $5 level that Luke JR is talking about. Then there's another quote from Maxwell. There is nothing wrong with full blocks and blocks have been full relative to what miners would produce for years. Full blocks is a natural state of the system. The demand for externalized cost, highly replicated external storage at price zero is effectively infinite. Now, if that sounds like a word salad, I don't think you're alone. It took me a few times reading that to figure out what he was saying. But he's saying that if people can make transactions for free, if people can store information for free, then they probably will and they'll take advantage of that. Of course, it's, it's not really for free because the people who are running the network, these Bitcoin miners running full nodes, are actually being paid for what they're doing. 
uh, even regardless of the transaction fees. So what Maxwell is saying here when he says there's nothing wrong with full blocks, he's saying that we actually need to prevent the system from meeting demand, prevent the system from fulfilling the transactions that go through. I don't know about you, but I have actually had a transaction which was reversed because I didn't put a sufficient fee on there. So that's the kind of thing that can happen in this system with this, this bidding war of transaction fees. So what am I getting at here? Let me just try to put it all together for you, put the pieces of the puzzle together. What I'm suggesting is that if you ran a, a large government organization or you, you were working for a large government organization and you realized that there was this new technology that was going to affect uh, the possibility of your being employed in the future, in fact, the, the possibility of the entire organization existing in the future, then you probably go ahead and start trying to damage it, to attack it, to take it apart in any way you could. And the things that you would look at, maybe you would look at the technology first and that's fine, but if the, the technology is run in this very high level uh, cryptography, then maybe that's not the easy way to attack it. So you'd look for other potential attack vectors. You would look for the people because people are easier to manipulate than machines and than well-designed software in a lot of cases. So maybe you would do things like go to the development team and pay them off. Or if that doesn't work, you threaten their family, you threaten them. If that doesn't work, they die in mysterious circumstances falling off the back of a train. As far as I know, that hasn't happened yet. Now, what else would you do? You, you might set up an organization with an innocuous sounding name like LinkChain. And we know that the CIA has a venture capital firm uh, and they're quite public about that. But we also know that the CIA has a large black budget and nobody really knows exactly how much money is in there. So if they wanted to start an organization on their own, there's no reason they couldn't do that. There's no reason they couldn't just create a company and then use that influence to manipulate the course of Bitcoin. And there's no reason they couldn't pay some kids a hundred, $200 a day under a non-disclosure statement, a non-disclosure agreement to go onto boards like Reddit, uh, to troll, to set up the noise, to bring up the noise so people could no longer communicate, even to the point of putting moderators in place on those boards so they could censor them, which is exactly what we've seen happen. And all of these things, uh, they're not really that improbable. They're quite likely when we put it into this historical context. And I think, uh, I think a lot of people in the digital currency community are aware of these things on like a peripheral level, but some of them would be very skeptical of talking about these kind of conspiracies, but they are real possibilities. So what's going to happen in the future? The question is, if we look at a system, a digital currency system, of course, for a long time, we assumed that the, these organizations were decentralized. Uh, the software is decentralized to some extent. Uh, we thought it was like BitTorrent and the government's not going to be able to take it down. 
Well, it's not really true though, uh, because we, we still have these central points of failure in the lives of the developers and the funders. So if you're looking at the viability of a digital currency system in the long term, what you have to look at is how is it resistant to those kinds of attacks. Now, people know I'm a big advocate for Dash, and one of the reasons is, is actually its resistance to this, uh, because you have the, the masternodes voting on what gets funded. So if the development team starts to do something really stupid, it starts to say really stupid things like saying, we need to reduce the utility, we need to make sure that the transaction fees are going up so we can establish this fee market uh, to avoid some possible future scenario where, where Dash becomes unusable or whatever, this kind of nonsense, then uh, they could be defunded and the funding could go to another development team. But of course, uh, with humans involved, the system is never going to be perfect. So people have proposed this idea, like if, if an organization like the, the CIA or the Fed set up uh, a, a buyers for Dash and then they set up masternodes and then they control all the voting. Well, uh, I don't think that's likely, but it's definitely not completely off the table either. So uh, these are some things that we need to look at and I guess we need to think about how to address in the future if we really expect digital currency to be taking off. Uh, because this actually today, it's, it's not a certainty and we'll probably never know if these type of things really happen except if maybe um, there's some leak you know, 30 years in the future, maybe we'll be able to see how the government manipulated Bitcoin to some extent, but we'll probably never really know. Um, so, but according to the historical precedent, we can see that it is likely. So these are the kinds of things we need to think about. We need to look at the human factors in any digital currency system. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, remember, you can jump on theparadiseparadox.com slash 162 for the show notes for this episode uh, with all of the links to the, the quotes that I cited. And you can jump on to patreon.com slash paradiseparadox. So jump on there and you can subscribe, get some rewards, uh, pay a couple of dollars a month. You'll be much appreciated if you help us out in that way. So thanks so much for listening once again. And I'll talk to you soon.